This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, we are looking this morning at verses 1 through 12. You can find this passage on page 807 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Thanks to the Lord for his holy word. Let's pray. Our Father, as we take up the study of this portion of the scriptures in these next few minutes, we pray for the assistance of your Holy Spirit who inspired these words. Father, we pray that as we study them, uh, that you would store our minds with your truth, feed our souls on your word, change our hearts, Lord, by the scriptures. In this time, for we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. These wise men who came to visit the newborn king of Israel came either from Persia or from Babylon. Many suggest Babylon because there was still uh, a community of Jews living in Babylon left over from the days of the Babylonian exile. You recall uh, the days of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, not all of the Jews returned to, to Jerusalem and to Judea. And so there was a community of Jews in Babylon, and it seems quite likely that these wise men may have come from Babylon 
and may have learned of the Jews and of the prophecies from that Jewish community. Either way, they had to travel a long way to come to Jerusalem. If from Babylon, they could have traveled as much as 900 miles. It's quite a journey to make for Christmas. And along the way, they no doubt had all kinds of adventures on a journey that would have at the least taken several months, made on foot or perhaps on the back of an animal. You can imagine all kinds of things they would have encountered, experiences they would have had along the way. But that's really not the Bible's concern with these men, not the journey, but their destination as they arrive in Jerusalem. Now, they came to Jerusalem because that would be the logical place to look for this king whose star they saw, or at least to begin their search for this king of whom they had knowledge of his birth. And so they begin their search in the city of Jerusalem. Now, Matthew calls these men uh, magi, from which our word magic comes. Some translations like the ESV translate it wise men. Some translations uh, like the NIV translate it magi. Uh, the same. The term originally referred to a class of Persian priests, but uh, later came to refer to people who had an interest in all kinds of things, including dreams, uh, astrology, magic, uh, books full of esoteric knowledge thought to contain information about the future, uh, signs and omens and the like. And certainly uh, among this number were those who were sincere seekers after truth, but uh, this number also certainly had their share of rogues and charlatans and con artists as well. Now, before we look at the text, we do know that tradition tells us a number of things about these men. First of all, uh, the tradition that there were three of them. Well, you'll note, if you were paying attention, that Matthew never tells us how many there were. The three is probably a deduction made from the fact that there were three gifts presented. Uh, there may well have been three of these wise men, but there certainly could have been more. We simply don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us. Also, by the end of the 6th century, tradition has given these men names, naming them Melchior, Balthasar, and Gaspar, or Casper. Uh, but again, Matthew doesn't tell us what their names are. We don't know. Tradition also indicates, uh, certainly the familiar hymn indicates that they were uh, kings. However, that seems unlikely, especially since Matthew designates what they were. They were a, a well-known class of people known as magi, known as wise men. But more than telling us about these wise men who came to Jerusalem, the passage really is designed to tell us about Jesus. He is the focus of this passage really uh, when you get down to the root of it. In fact, uh, as we look at the passage, each reaction of those people involved in this account tell us something about Jesus by their reactions to him, by their response to him. And so what we want to do in the next few minutes is look at those responses and what they tell us about this one who was born in Bethlehem. In the first place, Herod's alarm, Herod's alarm teaches us 
that Jesus is a king who will brook no rivals. Herod's alarm teaches us that Jesus is a king who will brook no rivals. And we really see this in Herod's reaction. We're going to move beyond the first verse or two and look at Herod. We'll look at the wise men in just a few minutes. But first of all, look with me at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, heard what? Well, report has come to him that these wise men, these visitors to the city, are, are saying something about a king who has been born. Now, the king had ears. He had ears in lots of different places because Herod had a somewhat paranoid streak to him. And no doubt it was not a, a very long time before a report got back that there are some people going around talking about a new king who has been born. And so the report has come to the king. And we read in verse 3, when he heard this, this report about a new king of the Jews, he was troubled. Some translations render it disturbed. Uh, those are both accurate. Maybe they don't go far enough. Uh, Weymouth, in his old translation, renders it, he was greatly agitated. That's probably a very good way to put it. He was on edge. He was very nervous. He was anxious. Well, who is Herod? Who is this king? D.A. Carson does a good job of uh, briefly describing Herod to us. And when you learn about Herod, you begin to understand a little bit more of what's going on in this passage. He describes in this way. Herod the Great, as he's now called, was born in 73 B.C., and was named king of Judea by the Roman Senate in 40 B.C. Now, it's estimated that Herod died about 4 B.C., so he reigned for a long time. By 37 B.C., he had crushed, with the help of Roman forces, all opposition to his rule. He was wealthy, politically gifted, intensely loyal, an excellent administrator, and clever enough, to remain in the good graces of successive Roman emperors. His famine relief was superb, and his building projects, including the temple, built begun in 20 B.C., the temple that stood there in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, a magnificent building. Uh, his building projects were admired even by his foes. But he loved power, inflicted incredibly heavy taxes on his people, and resented the fact that many Jews considered him a usurper. He was, he was half Jewish, not full Jew. In his last years, suffering from an illness that compounded his paranoia, he turned to cruelty and in fits of rage and jealousy killed close associates, his wife, Mary Amney, and at least two of his own sons. So this was not a man you wanted to cross. This was not a man that you wanted to have upset. Now, he's troubled. He's troubled because he's paranoid and he hears word of another king who has been born. And notice the wording in verse 2. Where, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Not where is he who is born to become king, but where is he who has been born King And so to Herod's paranoid ears, this was alarming uh, and enraging news indeed. And Herod, by his acquaintance with the Jews for so long, certainly would have known of their anticipation 
rooted in the Old Testament, of a new son of David to come and to be their deliverer. And so this knowledge combined now with the reports from the uh, his minions in town about the, what these wise men were saying put him on edge. And we read also not only Herod, but all Jerusalem with him, which probably was a reference to the religious leaders who also constituted the ruling class in Jerusalem. Many of them owed their positions to Herod, were installed by Herod. Others, whether or not they owed their positions to him or not, knew how Herod could be when he was upset and perhaps feared what the reaction to this news might be. So Herod's troubled, uh, all Jerusalem troubled, the leaders uh, troubled with him about this news that they've heard. And so we read in uh, verses 7 to 8 that he summons the wise men. Now, he asked the chief priests and scribes in verse 4 about where the Christ was to be born, and they told him, we're going to look at that in just a minute, but for now, he summons the wise men. Uh, He he wants these men to come to him. He wants to find out some details. Verse 7, he summons them secretly, privately. It's the same word that's used of Joseph in in the previous passage, saying he wanted to divorce Mary quietly, privately, secretly. Same word that's used here. He summons them, the wise men, secretly, confidential meeting with them, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And so he enlists their help uh, with motives unknown to them in verse 8. He sent them to Bethlehem when he found out where the Messiah was to be born, uh, to Bethlehem, about five miles south of Jerusalem saying, go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I, may, I too may come and worship him. Of course, he had no such intention, but he wanted these men to go do his work for him to find this child and come back and report to the king where he is. In short, Jesus posed a threat to the establishment, to King Herod, who feared that there was a new king on the block, someone who was a threat to his rule. Jesus posed a threat to the established powers of this world. And you know, he still does. He is still a threat to the powers that be in this world, to reigning political, military powers. Uh, Throughout the ages, civil governments have feared Christians without grounds, I might add. Christians make very good citizens. They obey the laws. They pray for those who are in power over them. But there's one thing they won't do, and they won't acknowledge the preeminence of the state, but rather confess the preeminence of Christ. And for some rulers and some governments, that's too much. They want supreme allegiance for themselves and not to another. But, of course, Christ will not allow us to place allegiance to the state over our allegiance to him. And so our brothers and sisters over the centuries have found themselves placed between a rock and a hard place uh, with the absolute loyalty to Christ on one hand and the uh, requirement in some states of absolute loyalty to the state on the other. And faithful Christians have chosen their loyalty to Christ above that to of the state. They will never give the state the place they give to Christ. And for many earthly rulers, that's a threat. So Christ is a threat to the reigning powers out there. But, you know, Christ is also a threat to the reigning powers in here, 
to the establishment in our hearts, because the establishment in our hearts is sin. And Christ is a threat to sin. Jesus makes inconvenient and painful demands. Jesus tells those who would follow him to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. As with Herod, those things that govern our hearts, those little idols that we cherish and harbor in our hearts are threatened when Jesus moves onto the scene. They want to strike back. They want to lash out. They want to say, no, that's too much. No, I will not have you as king in my realm. And yet a new king, if you are a believer, a new king, the true king, has been born in our hearts, has been born in our hearts and will reign there, and sin, the usurper, must step aside. Jesus allows no rivals. Jesus allows no alternate loyalties in our hearts. You see, the process of sanctification, of growing as a Christian, is a process of execution, of executing all pretenders to the throne that belongs to Jesus in our hearts, whatever idol that might be. See, we learn from Herod's alarm that Jesus will brook no rivals to his reign. When Jesus claims, come to us, if we take them seriously, you may feel a hint of alarm in your own heart because you know what Jesus is asking And yet Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the one who was born to reign over the hearts of his people. And so that's the first thing that we learn here from Herod's reaction, uh, those leaders of Jerusalem with him, is that Jesus will allow no usurper to the throne, no rival to our loyalty to him. Second, the chief uh, priests and the scribes' answer teaches us that Jesus is the Messiah who came to save his people. Now, Herod asks, when he hears this news, he gathers the priests, he gathers the scribes uh, to himself, the scribes especially being the Old Testament experts, the teachers of the law, uh, to himself. And he asks them, well, where does the Bible say that the Messiah is to be born? Now, that shows that Herod's uh, knowledge of his Bible was pretty nominal. Uh, since he had to consult experts on something so profound. And yet at the same time, we, we note later in the passage we read from John 7 that there was some confusion about Jesus, about, his, about where he was from. We saw in John 7, people were saying, well, no, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? We, the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. Uh, how can he come out of Galilee? Well, what they didn't know was that Jesus, while known as a Nazarene, known as a, a Galilean, northerner, was actually from Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem in the south, south of Jerusalem. And so Herod asked the priests, the scribes, where would he be born? And in verse 5 they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet Micah, which we read earlier. And this quotation there, this quotation that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, Ephratah, in the land of Judah, the southern Bethlehem. There was another one in the north, in Galilee. But he's referring here to the one in the south. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the Messiah was to come from Bethlehem, and that was in fact where this child was born, which of course only compounds Herod's uh, paranoia, Herod's concern. 
Now, Jesus is the Messiah. And Matthew, as we pointed out last week, takes great delight in showing how these various things accomplished in Jesus' life are fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. Unless someone come along and say, well, Jesus knew the prophecies. Jesus was arranging things so that he could fulfill them or appear to fulfill them. Well, obviously he did not arrange the place of his birth. Uh, the, the Jews knew, the leaders knew that it was from Bethlehem, and surely enough, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But Jesus was not the Messiah they were expecting. As his ministry develops, uh, his ministry, his works, did not accord with common expectation of a military and political deliverer. Uh, And yet Jesus had come to deliver them from something much greater than the power of Rome, which for us today, of course, is merely words on the page of history books, but to deliver them from something far more powerful, far more sinister, and certainly far more permanent, and that is the sin in the human heart. Remember the prophecy uh, given by the angel to Uh, to Joseph in chapter 1, verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, Matthew again points to this fulfillment of the prophecy to show that this was the promised one. This was the son of David who was to be born, who was to save his people from their sins. But there's a third reaction that we find here, that of Herod, certainly that of the scribes and the priests as they refer to the prophecy in the Old Testament, and also then finally the wise men themselves, the magi themselves, whose approach to Jesus, whose approach and response to Jesus teaches us that Jesus is God incarnate and that our response is to worship him. He is worthy of the worship of his people. And with this, we return to the wise men. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says in verse 2, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. First thing we need to notice here is that these men are Gentiles. And throughout this passage is the irony, on the one hand, of these Gentiles who have come from so far making this arduous journey in order to acknowledge this new king born in Bethlehem, on the one hand, and the fear and paranoia and ultimately uh, hostility that is shown toward Jesus among his own kinsmen, among the Jewish people. Of course, you see this through his ministry. Those even among the Jews who opposed him, certainly there were those who believed in him too, But this is a theme that begins here and runs throughout Matthew's gospel. The irony of the nations coming to Christ when so many of his own kinsmen, the Jews, reject him. Or in case of Herod, and certainly leaders with him, seek to put him to death. But they follow this star. We've seen his star in the the east when we were in the east. Or it could also be translated, we saw a star when it rose. Of course, the idea of it rising in the east was there, but... What was the star? That's often a question that's asked. Well, Matthew does not give us the answer to that, what this sign was that these wise men saw. Uh, No end to the speculation as to the nature of this celestial phenomenon that they saw. Some have suggested that it was the alignment 
of planets, and in fact, there was such an alignment around this time, it's specifically dated, uh, others have suggested a star that exploded, that uh, became a nova. And in fact, uh, there are records of those who observed such a phenomenon about this time. Others have suggested that this was uh, some other uh, celestial phenomenon, such as a comet. And in fact, Halley's Comet uh, did come by in 12 BC, which is close, probably a bit early for this, but was close. This probably took place about 6 BC. Uh, so it's difficult to pinpoint any particular natural phenomenon. Certainly when we come down to uh, verse 9, where the star seems to lead them, uh, that does not seem to fit a natural, but perhaps a supernatural phenomenon that they saw, whether the same or something different, we don't know. And Matthew's not concerned about that. His point is that this sign was given that led these wise men to come and to seek out this one who has been born king of the Jews. Now, they came to him with gifts. We read, as they followed this star, verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a Hebrew way of saying, that, basically saying they were deliriously happy. Uh, maybe that's too strong, but not far. Uh, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were overjoyed that they've come to their destination reached the end of their journey. Verse 11, going into the house, no longer in a manger at this point, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Now, here and later, the reference is to the child. Mary's second. That's an unnatural way of putting it. We said the mother and child, and they would say it that way in Greek too, but here the emphasis is on the child. It's on Christ. They saw the child with his mother. He is the focal point. He is the one whom they have come to see. And we read that they fell down and worshipped him, opening their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold needs no explanation. Uh, frankincense was uh, a, a resin derived from trees that had a very nice fragrance to it. It was sometimes used as a perfume. It was also one of the ingredients that was used in the incense burned in, on the altar in the tabernacle and later the temple. Uh, myrrh also was derived from the sap of trees, and it was used as a spice. Uh, its particular use often was as a, uh, as a burial ointment to be uh, used to prepare bodies for burial. Uh, there have been many efforts to find particular meaning in these gifts. Some that have been suggested is that the gold represents royalty, that the incense represents deity, and that the myrrh represents the suffering and death of Jesus. There's no way to confirm that or deny that. More likely, uh, as these were common, uh, certainly uh, ordinary gifts, expensive but well-known as gifts, that these wise men have come and brought these gifts. And in fact, it's also quite possible that the, the value of these gifts was employed in uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus' uh, escape to Egypt in the next passage. Uh, used to finance that uh, journey to Egypt. We don't know that, but it's quite possible that the value of these would have been helpful to them in that way. And so they come bringing their gifts. They also come, we read, bowing down. They fell, they bowed down, they worshipped this king. Now, it's hard to know what was in the minds of these wise men. It's doubtful that they recognized what we do 
the incarnation of God here right before them, God incarnate. Uh, the word could simply mean they did homage to this royalty before them. Uh, however, Matthew likes to use this term in an indication where Jesus is worshipped, is acknowledged, and we might could say that the wise men offered homage far beyond what they knew when they came and bowed down before this child. This was not merely the newborn king of the Jews, but was in fact their creator and sustainer in the flesh. And so from each of these, we learn lessons about our response to Jesus. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of a baby, but not just any baby. This Jesus is the king who threatens all other rulers, whether rulers of this world or other rulers in our hearts. Submit to him. This Jesus is the Savior who came to save his people from their sins. Trust in him. This Jesus is God in the flesh, God incarnate, Emmanuel. Worship him. You see, only those who submit to Jesus as their king, who trust in him as their savior, who worship him as their God, only they have learned the lesson of the wise men. Let's pray. Our Father, we certainly join with these wise men in bowing before you, offering to you our very lives, submitting to you as our King, trusting in you as our Savior, worshiping you as our God. Father, we pray that as we celebrate the amazing birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, that like these wise men, we would seek Jesus, that we would know Jesus and bow before him as our Messiah. And we pray in his name. Amen.